Okay, we're in the book of 1 Peter, going into chapter 2 tonight. We started it last week and going to go on into it uh, this week and maybe if we get that far, get into chapter 3 a little bit. You remember that Peter is, write, is writing a letter, and he's writing a letter to strangers, people who have been scattered, who because of persecution were driven out of Jerusalem, and they're all over Asia Minor now. They've gone a long ways from home. They were Jewish people mostly, and now they're spread out all over, and he's writing a letter to tell them that, look, there's a new family now, uh, it's not the Jewish people now, but it's people who believe in God, and that's the new family. And you can be part of that new family, part of that inheritance that comes from being in that family. And he's trying to help them learn to uh, adjust, because it's a big adjustment being driven out of your home. You and I never experienced that. We never have, and I hope we never do. But there's plenty of people in this world who in the past were driven from their homes and driven from their countries and have gone through this kind of a trial. These people went through some pretty fiery things. They were starving to death in Jerusalem because they were shut off from any economic activity, blackballed by the people there. It's the only way they could figure out to get rid of them. And so they blackballed them and they spread out. And so Peter is reaching out to these Jews who have been spread out. And he's saying things to help these Jewish people understand uh, what's coming up and how to think about things. And uh, we're in chapter 2, and we're about to go into a topic. We're going to talk about stones. Sounds exciting, huh? We're going to talk about stones. In the Bible, there are three basic, uh, you might call them pictures, uh, that are used to explain what the church is like. Uh, the church is like a bride. The church is called a bride. And that bride, of course, Christ loves the bride. And so Jesus loves the church. So the church shows the love of Jesus and it uses the name bride. Church is also called a body. And uh, I think that's a pretty interesting one. Uh, the body does what? Well, it all functions together. The brain tells us what to do. And we do things just naturally and normally as we all, our body parts work together. And the church is like a body. It has the brain with the head, which is Christ. And we're all working together depending on each other. And so the church is a bride, shows the love of Christ, body shows the life of Christ, and then a building to show the labor of Christ. And that's what we're about to talk about here in this next passage, the church as a building. And this is a particularly uh, important thing for these Jews right now to think about. Now it's good for all of us to think about, but for these Jews in particular, if you were raised Jewish at this time in Israel, your whole 
life centered around the temple. You went to the temple. If you lived in Jerusalem, you went probably every day. You went to the temple. Remember Anna from the Christmas story and Simeon from the Christmas story? They were there all the time. They spent all time in the temple. If you lived close to Jerusalem, you could do that. If you lived far away, like in Galilee, where Jesus did, then you would travel to the temple, mandatory three times a year to go to the temple. And everything happened there. It was 26 acres, huge complex, and uh, able to fit thousands and thousands of people in there. And they would come in and go through all sorts of things, sacrificing for, of animals, uh, all of that happened there. And that was the center of everything that they did. Well, now they're not there anymore. And so the very thing that they lived by and did and became culturally their lifestyle, I mean, their vacations were all centered on the temple. You get two weeks off for Passover, everybody in the whole country, they're all going to go to Jerusalem and have Passover in Jerusalem, Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. Uh, it was just the way that life was, vacations, culture was entirely absorbed in it. And now they, they're up in Asia. Can't go to the temple. Can't do anything. It has anything to do with the way you grew up. So it's a little hard to adjust, to make that adjustment. So he's going to try to help them to think about it in a new way. And so here we go, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, as he tries to help them to understand. Here we go, verse 4. To whom coming, talking about Jesus, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, uh, there's some passages in the Old Testament uh, that call Jesus a rock, a stone. I want to look at those because they tell us something about what's going to happen what was going to happen to Jesus long before it happened? Uh, Psalm 118, if you want to look there with me, Psalm 118. And look at verse 22. Psalm 118, 22. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, there were some builders, all right? He said there were builders. And these builders were the people who made, who built, who did religion, particularly in Jerusalem. So it would be the priests and the high priests and the rabbis and all those folks. And they were the structure of religion. And along comes this, this carpenter. He'd never been to school. And they say, he's not part of our building. We don't want him in our building. 
We reject him. So there's a stone. Say, here's a stone. And they said, when we build our building, he's not going to be in it. We don't want him as part of our religious structure. But it says, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. And so uh, Jesus was rejected. Jesus was rejected. The stone that the builders rejected. Then God said, well, you may not like that stone, but I'm going to make a new building. And that stone's going to be the chief cornerstone. So God says, we're going to make him the, the, the cornerstone. And that's the main stone that holds the building up. And all the other stones lean on the cornerstone. It's in the corner so we can hold the walls both ways and secure the walls. And he says, you rejected Jesus. You don't want Jesus. You don't want him to be a part of your religion. But God said, I'm going to make him the cornerstone. He says, this is the Lord's doing. This is the way God wanted it, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, over to Isaiah chapter 8, there's another one here that talks about Jesus being a stone. You say, why is he a stone? Not because he's hard. That's certainly not it. That's not what it is. Let's look at this one. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 14. Again, we're talking about Jesus. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and snared and taken. And so uh, Jesus is also, he said, the rock, which is a stone that you fall over. A stone of stumbling. And so to some people, they're walking along and they trip on a rock and over they go. And they get busted up and broken up and they fall and uh, over that rock. Jesus, to many people, is a stumbling stone. They don't know what to do with them. They can't deal with them. They don't want to deal with them. And when it comes to, here's this man. He showed up on this earth claiming to be the Son of God. He did what nobody else could ever have done and ever did ever before or since. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He did all those things. And now he says, I'm going to die for your sins. And so that means you're a sinner and you need his help. And they say, no, I don't want it. I don't want his help. And they stumble over that rock. And so there are people who, Jesus, they reject him outright. And there's some who fall and stumble over him. They can't deal with Jesus. He's very truthful. And uh, if people, you want to hear the truth about yourself, you go to Jesus. And you'll figure out where you're coming from. That's the best way to learn about yourself. Go listen to Jesus. Pretty soon you'll 
come around and you'll see what you need. So here's this stone, he says. And uh, let's go back now to 1 Peter 2. To whom, verse 4, coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, that is, they said, we don't want Jesus to be part of our religious structure, but chosen of God and precious. You also, as living stones, are built up into a spiritual house. All right, so he says, Jesus is that cornerstone, that good, strong cornerstone. And we're these rocks, and we're piled up, and we're leaning on him. He's the chief cornerstone. And what are we doing? Well, when he's a stone, he's building material. He's building material, right? Stones are still building material to this day, right? We like to lay down stones, and that, that's a building material. This old church is laid up on stones, sits on stones all around, piled up. Somebody got them from the field somewhere, probably, and brought them up, piled them up, and they built on them. And it's been here for a hundred and how many years? A long time, long time. This church's been standing because it's on stone. Stones are a building material. So he said, Jesus, I want you to look at him like this. He's, a, he's building material, and so are you. And we're going to build a new building. You can't go to that temple back in Jerusalem anymore. It's out of your reach. But I want you to know there's a new building, and you're part of it. And you're laid up on the foundation, all right, and we're building. And he said, this is going to be the new temple <coughs> made of people. Not made of stones and wood and so on. There's a new temple made of people. People get together, and they what do they call that? They call that the church. So the church is exactly that. It's people leaning on Jesus as our basis, as our foundation, and coming together. And what are we supposed to do? Verse 5. Ye also as lively stones are built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So he says, you're way off in Asia somewhere, and you're saying to yourself, I wish I could go to the temple. You don't need to worry about that. There's a new thing, he said. Jesus is the cornerstone of this new building, and you're a part of it, and we all lean together. So what did you do back in that old temple? Well, we sacrificed. Okay. Why? Why did you sacrifice? Well, we sinned. So we take a lamb in and ask God, ask God to forgive us, and we'd sacrifice the lamb. He said, well, the high priest did that, right? Yeah, well, Jesus is the high priest, and he made it sacrifice. It's all done. So you never have to sacrifice for sin again. But there are other things that happen in the temple. What? Well, we'd go there and we'd sing. The priest would sing. And the priests would pray, and, and that's what we went to the temple for, to pray. We sang, we praised God. That's what we went for. He said, well, now you're going to do it in your temple, 
You don't have to sacrifice for sin. Jesus took care of that. But you still have the same things you're going to do, and you're the priest now. Well, when we were at the temple, the priest did all the work. Yeah, well, now you're the priest. He says, you're the priest, so you're going to do this work. What are you going to do? When you get together, you're going to pray. You're going to pray to God. All right, you're going to... Uh, Give praise, worship. So prayer, worship, and praise. He says those are things that the priest did. It's your job now to do that. So instead of saying, I wish I was back at the temple, get to church and do what your job is to do. It's your job to pray. It's your job to praise the Lord's your job. We, we get together, we sing. Why do we sing? So that it'll cause worship to rise in your heart. So we become part of this building, everybody leaning on each other, everybody putting our weight on Christ, and then we have a job to do. We're here to do that job, he says. And verse 6, Therefore is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. But unto you which believe, he is precious. Unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders allowed, the same is made the head of the corner, stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Even to them that stumble at the word, being disobedient, where also they were appointed." So there he says, you are here. <clears throat> and do you notice there's a word keeps coming up? We've seen it three times. Do you see what that word is? What's that? Well, it's verse 4. He's precious. Verse 6. He is precious. Verse 7, he is precious. He repeats it over and over and over again. Because there are people who don't want anything to do with Jesus. They stumble and fall over him and they reject it. God said, I'm going to make him the head cornerstone. So to you and to me, who are part of the church, uh, we look at him as being precious. Precious. Well, what's the definition of precious? Something that's precious is very valuable, right? That's one of the definitions of it. And we talk about children as being precious. That is, uh, we love them very much. We, we uh, think that they're just everything. We think that they're everything. We think that they are precious, right? And so because uh, they are precious, we think of Christ as being precious. He's valuable and we adore him. Church is centered on that idea that everybody else may reject him, but not us. We think he's valuable, delightful. He's all those wonderful things. He is precious to us. Right, and that's important part. So, 
That's kind of the way you're supposed to view church as a building. Stone. All come together, leaning on each other, and from it goes up uh, praise and worship. Verse 9. You are a chosen generation. Now the word is generation. So there's something new. There's a new generation. You and I who think Jesus is precious. There's a new generation. Or there's something new that's being started. You are a royal priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. You have responsibility to serve God. Remember that a prophet comes from God. God says to the prophet, go tell them. And so a prophet gets a message from God, takes it to the people. A priest goes to God. A little bit different, see? So we approach God as a priest. He says, you're a priest. You're supposed to approach God regularly. That's your job to do. A holy nation. We are a group together of peculiar people. You ever think of Christians as being peculiar? <laughs> Interesting word. Peculiar. Lots of times I meet somebody and I think they're just strange enough to be a Christian. <laughs> Look at them, they're kind of weird. They're probably Christians. Right? They're peculiar. What does he mean by peculiar? Well, they're different. You're part of a holy nation, a family, and you are supposed to be different from everybody else. You know, you're peculiar. You're different. Different mainly from who? Why is he telling these people they got to be different? Because they're up in Asia and surrounded by every kind of heathen you can think of. Every kind of strange philosophies and thoughts and every vile kind of thing you can think of is what they now live among. So he says, you got to be different from the people you're with. You've got to be different. You church people stick together. You have a job to do, do it, which is what? To show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So in the darkness out there, in the confusion out there, uh, your job is to let people know, hey, we got life figured out. We have the light of God helping us to understand life and what it's all about. And we have a responsibility to make sure people know that there is an answer. There is purpose in life. We have an answer. And it's God who calls us out of darkness into his light. That's where you want to be out there in that world showing people that you're different, you're peculiar. 
here's why we have light we understand truth verse 10 which in past time were not a people but are now the people of god which had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy dearly beloved i beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul peter gives no quarter no quarter he is not going to give you a break. He's going to take it right to you. <laughs> he is going to make sure of one thing. Remember, after the resurrection, Peter and Jesus had a conversation. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And what did he say? Yeah, you know I love you. He said, so feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I do, yeah. Feed my land. Peter, do you love me? You know I do. I said it. I'm saying it again, I do. So feed my sheep. If you love me, and you're going to prove it, I want you to feed the flock of God. So Peter, from that moment on, took it as his responsibility that he's got to feed the flock of God. He's got to take care of God's people. And he's getting pretty good at it now by the time he's writing this letter because he's not going to let you get away with anything. He expects your Christianity to touch all parts of your life. Every part of it. He will not accept a Christianity that only works on Sunday morning when you come to church. He won't want any part of it. He wants a Christianity that gets in every part of your life, works its way down through your heart until everything around you is touched by your Christianity. And he says you live in a pretty dark world. And he says you need to make sure... Right, that you're changing that world. And what is it, dearly beloved? I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. He told us back in chapter 1, in verse 16, it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. All right, so he said in verse, back in chapter 1, Be holy. Then he said in chapter 2, I want you to lay aside malice, envy, your bad temper, everything that makes you at odds with people around you, I want you to lay it aside. What he meant by that, the best way to think of it in the words that he actually used was, it's, ta it's take that coat off and throw it out and don't ever put it on again. Lay it aside. Don't set it there and I'll need it later when I want it again. Take that coat off, that coat that's full of bad temper and malice and those kind of things that hurt your relationships and throw it away. Get rid of it. You can't have it anymore. All right, so he's telling you, your relationships have got to change. Your inner heart attitude's got to change. You've got to be holy. And now he says, I want you to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. Or he says, there are things out there in that world 
that are bad. You live in a world that's full of all kinds of bad things. So watch what he says, verse 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So he says they say bad things about you. Back in this time, what they were saying about Christians was it's a secret society and they do awful things in secret. And the things that they do in secret are they take little babies and they eat their flesh and drink their blood. That's what they were saying about Christians in Asia Minor. And he said, they're going to say bad things about you, but what are you going to do about that? He says, you're going to straighten your life up and live right and do the right things that they by your good works they will see God so he says they're going to say bad things about us and they're going to say bad things about Christians today he said but you're going to have to live in such a way so that your reputation overcomes what they say you have to have good reputation lay aside bad things develop good reputation. They're going to say bad things about you. Now here's some of the things he mentioned. It's kind of unusual when we hear this, particularly in the day we live. Verse 13. Submit yourselves every, to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be the king is supreme or unto governors. Ah, governors. As unto them which are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, the praise of them that do well. All right. He says, you've got to be good citizens. You've got to do what good citizens do. You can't be a rabble rouser. You've got to do what the laws are. And he says, unto them which are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. He's talking about policemen. People who uh, enforce the law. He says, I expect you to support people who enforce the law. And you want to ask me, Eric, Eric, does that mean we got to do everything they say? Well, let's read on. I'm sure he'll tell us. 15. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. They're going to say things that aren't very good. You're going to do well. You're going to be a good citizen. Do the right thing. You do well as free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. You are free. Not free to do anything you feel like. it. That's not what the freedom is talking about. He says you're free and you will do what God wants you to do. And Peter's the prime example in the Bible of this. Peter was preaching down in the temple after the resurrection and the day of Pentecost. And so they hauled him in and they said, you will stop that preaching about Jesus today. And you will never preach that sermon in, a, in our temple again. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. I got a choice. Obey God or obey you. 
I'm going with God. He said, we ought to obey God rather than man. So there is a time when the government says, you can't do this, and we got to stand up and say, yes, we can. Amen. Yes, we can. All right. Now, that doesn't mean we're rabble-rousers and bad citizens. We're still good citizens doing the best we can, trying to obey laws and respect police, he says. You don't use your freedom as a cloak of maliciousness. But you use your freedom, it says, as a servant of God. And there came down, as you all know, a thing that churches aren't supposed to be open. I'm thinking, well, I could do what they say, or I could do what God says. No, we're not going to close. We're going to stay open. That means we preach in the sunshine. We preach in the rain. We preach with 30-mile-an-hour winds blowing into our teeth. And we do what we got to do because we will not close. Amen. The reason is, he says, you're a servant of God. And God says, you got something to do. I gave you to do. And so I think to myself, well, what can I do? What can I do? I got to keep going. Because in the end... It's not possible for me to close a church because in the end I have to do what God says because that's I'm going to answer for it. And I can't go up in front of God and I'll say, well, they said we couldn't because history is filled with people who are told the same thing. Back in Rome, they said, no, you can't meet. And they went underground in the catacombs and they met anyway. And in Europe, they said, you can't meet. And they got on a boat and came to America. They said, we will meet. And we'll meet in America if that's what we have to do. And that's what the pilgrims did. And the Puritans came over. Because they were told, no, you can't. They said, yes, we can. They told John Wesley, you can't meet. So he went out in the barns and he went out in the fields and preached wherever he could. Yes, we can. And so you can't go to God and say, well, they said we weren't supposed to. I can't answer that. i got to say that we did what we were going to do. So, yes, we are free. We have liberty not to be hard to get along with, but to serve God. Verse 17, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Be good citizens. Look around and have respect for people, love, believer, fear God, and we do our best to honor the king. Now he's going to take it up a notch. I told you, he's never going to leave any stone unturned. He's going to take it up a notch and see what you're made of. Servants, verse 18, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. He said, some of you work for people that are really nice and kind, and I'm really glad that that's true. And some of you work for people who are miserable, nasty people, hard to get along with people. You work for those kind of people, he says. So you do what you're told, do your job at work, all right? 4 verse 19, this is thankworthy. 
If a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, if somebody treats you very badly at work, for what glory is if it, when you be buffeted for your fault, you shall take it patiently? He said, if you're naughty and you've done a bad job, and somebody says, you did a lousy job, don't say, boom. If you did a bad job, then you did. You did a bad job. You've got to take that. And he said, but if you didn't do a bad job, Verse 20, for what glory is if you be buffeted for your faults, or if they say you didn't do a good job, take it patiently. That's only normal. But if you do well and suffer for it, take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. So you get blamed for something you didn't do. That ever happened to any of you? You get blamed for something you didn't do. If you get uh, charged with something that uh, you know wasn't your fault, he said, Shut your mouth. Don't argue. Fight. Take it patiently. He said, God is watching and he helps. And I, I can't tell you how wonderfully true that is. When we take it patiently, it just does wonderful things to the people around us. They begin to have respect for us. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us. Leave me an example that you should follow his steps. Now you think, well, I got treated real poorly. Let's see what happened to Jesus. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He always told the truth. When he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judges righteously. When Jesus was up on charges, the Jews came in front of Pilate, and they screamed just hundreds of charges. He did this, he did that, he did this, he did that. And Jesus just sat there. And Pilate finally said, aren't you going to say anything? Listen to this number of charges they're bringing against you. Aren't you going to say something? And it says, Pilate marveled because he didn't say anything. He kept quiet. And they played a game with him. They put a blindfold on him and they struck him in the face. Punched him in the face. And then they said, who hit you? Come on, prophesy. Who hit you? He didn't say anything. They took him to Herod. Stood in front of Herod. Herod said, come on, can you do something? I'd like to see one of some of that miracle stuff you do. He never spoke one word to Herod. He did not speak the whole time. And finally, <clears throat> what did he do? He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he died. Now that's what he did. Verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. He said he bore our sins, he suffered in our place. So if you're suffering, if you're having a hard time, and you can be patient through it, go through it and be patient through it. He said, what's going to come out the other side? It'll come out right, because that's what Jesus did. So he 
pretty high standard, isn't it? You go to work and you think, boy, this guy, pretty high standard. Jesus kept, keep yourself under control. Be patient. It'll do a world of good for you. Verse 25, for you were as sheep going astray. Remember what you were. But now return to the shepherd and the bishop of your soul. You come back to God. So, look what he's saying. You're going to be a good citizen. You're going to obey the government. Put away the malice and the bad part of your character that makes your relationships uneasy. You're going to get rid of those and throw them off. And you're going to watch what your life is. Abstain from fleshly lusts, he says. See, when they were out there in these places in Asia Minor, they were surrounded with people for whom religion was mostly sex. That's what it was. They'd get together in their temples for Adonis and every other thing under the sun. And prostitutes was a common part of their, their service, if you call it a service. So they were surrounded with that kind of stuff. So he says, you got to make sure you keep yourself away from that. Away from that. Because when you talk about the people you're living out there with now, they think when they say religion, they're talking about something a whole lot different than you are. you got to live in such a way to show them the difference. Right? Now, I told you Peter's going to get you. He's talking about your behavior at work, talking about your attitude towards the government, talking about the way you live among the people that are out there. Now he's going to come right in your house. Coming in your house now. Coming in your home. And he's got a right to do it because... We say, you know, they say the Pope doesn't get married. Pope doesn't get well. Peter was married. <laughs> Peter had a mother-in-law. We know that because she got sick and Jesus healed her. And so Peter knows what it is to be married. I'd say he was pretty good at it. And he's about to talk about your marriage. I never touch this topic. <laughs> you haven't heard me say much about marriage in the last 30 years, but Peter's into it. So here we go. You ready? <laughs> Chapter 3. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Whoa, everybody loves that. Your wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. And here's the reason. That's an important one. That if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wise. Well, they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. All right. So he says, if you're married and your husband doesn't care anything about the Lord, just doesn't want anything to do with it, 
Don't hit him over the head with a Bible. He won't listen to the word. He said he's not interested in the Bible. What do you do? He said you live your life in such a way so that he is enticed to believe by the way you behave. So he said, women be subject to your husband. Man, people don't like that in this day and age. Well, I always tell young couples that are getting married, I say there are ways to solve problems in marriage, and most people are really bad at it. But there are ways to solve problems. And we talk about various different ways, but one of the ways I always say is that the Bible has a way to solve marriage problems. So let the wife be subject to the husband. All right. So it's God that set that up, not me. It's God that set it up. And God said, uh, when it comes to a husband and wife and they are at odds, and the women, woman is to step down and let the man decide. You say, oh, no, my husband's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> unfortunately, those things are sometimes true. <laughs> but the point of this is, is, is this, and you get this and understand it, because this is why this works. You say, well, a woman is to give in to the man if there's a controversy that comes up, he said, be subject or let the man make the choice. So man said, yeah, that's right, I get to make the choice. No, here's how it goes, gentlemen. Here's how it goes. So when you get to win the argument, because that's what the Bible says, let the woman be subject to the man, that means you better be right. <laughs> you better be right. And lots of times the things, for example, uh, is uh, about a child. How do we raise a child? What do we do? Well, you know, if you're wrong, Junior's going to jail. You understand if you're wrong, Junior will go to jail. You can't be wrong. And so when it says wives be subject to your husbands, then the, the other side also is this, that men, you better start practicing and gathering all the wisdom you can find. You're here to gather wisdom. You get it any way you can get it. You search the scriptures and you get wise that way. You look around. There's a family that's like in, in order. Their family's in good shape. Good. Ask them how they do it. Find a way. All right. Find a way. You need to be collecting wisdom because wisdom is the kind of thing that you don't get overnight. But all of a sudden you need it overnight, right? All of a sudden you need it overnight. And so it is the man's responsibility to be gathering wisdom from the day he says I do and every other day after that. He's to collect wisdom, get more and more and more and more and more of it. Don't ever stop. Don't ever stop. All right. And so that when the day comes that the wife says, all right, you decide, hopefully, 
you've done what you're supposed to do. You're wise enough to make the choice, and it'll be the right one. Because at that moment, the responsibility is entirely yours and not hers at all. And if it goes wrong, it's all your fault. So you can't go. You can't be wrong. See what I mean? And so when you talk about we'll always be subject to husband in this day and age, oh, no, leave that out of our wedding vows. No, 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 no. God has a way because he assumes that men are going to be wise. Now, he's saying here, be easy to get along with and win your husband that way. Verse 3. Whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning or plaiting of the hair, wearing of gold, or putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. So he says, be beautiful on the inside. Now, it's all right if you want to dress up on the outside. Uh, you know, you can, he says. But if you want to make yourself beautiful, make yourself beautiful in here. Do that, he says. That's what you need to do as a woman. I want to be beautiful on the inside. Let it be the hidden man of the heart. So your adorning, your beautiful, uh, is on the inside. You say, well, he's ugly as an old shoe. I know people that... You couldn't even look at them. They're so ugly. But you love them to death. Why? Because their beauty is inside. It's where it belongs. All right? That's where it belongs. And so that, he says, is the way women should think. Let it be, verse 4, the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. God looking down on your behavior, ladies, and he says, here's what he'd like to see, meek and quiet spirit. That means you are not argumentative. That's what he means. Beauty inside of a lady means you're not argumentative. Peter said you're saying, Eric, you're getting... No, 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 Peter said it. And let me go on, and I'm going to tell you something about Peter. After this manner in the old time, holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves. This is what some of the people in the Bible did, being a subjection to their own husband, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well. All right. So he says, I want you to be like Sarah. Sarah had a quiet spirit. And she lived with Abraham. And Abraham sometimes made some bad choices. Got her in trouble. He made a bad choice. He went down to Egypt. Made a bad choice. Said, she's my sister. And Pharaoh said, well, if she's your sister. I'll take her. And he took her. And she ended up in his harem. And then, finally, Pharaoh found out, that's really his wife. And he went and said, what are you doing to me? What did you lie to me for? And what did Sarah do? She kept quiet. What's the matter with you? That's what you think you, think you, think you like doing, right? No, she kept quiet. And he said, Sarah did that well. All right, so you learn 
to be in subjection, to be quiet. And then he says this, and are not afraid with any amazement. And that's a fascinating comment that he throws in there. Not afraid with any amazement, he says. Uh, don't be controlled as a woman by hysterical fear. That's what he means. He says, not, are not afraid with any amazement, or that is, sometimes, he says, a woman's quiet spirit gets all messed up by a hysterical fear about things that are going on. Learn to control that and be calm. Likewise, you husbands, uh oh, we got to that and I'm out of time. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Now, Peter and his wife were pretty close. lived and ministered together as far as we know and of course he was away sometimes but uh, doing the will of God and she was with him right with him all the way you know how far she went in the end the last thing that happened to Peter was they crucified him and he said to the people that were crucifying him, I don't deserve to die in this way, not because I'm good, but because Jesus died this way. And so I want you to crucify me upside down. And so the cross was like that. He got crucified upside down. Who was on the cross next to him? His wife. His wife was on the cross next to him. And they are reported as having said, Thank God that we're upside down. We're not worthy to die like he did, right side up. And they both died on the cross. I think that's a guy that knows something about marriage. Because what's about to happen, likewise, you husbands, you're going to get into that. You're going to find out why they got crucified upside down together. And so he knows what he's talking about. He's going to shoot you husbands right between the eyes next week. <laughs> when we come back. So you ladies are saying, yeah, that was kind of, well, our turn's come. Okay. Next week's our turn. As Peter goes on to talk about husbands, you see, I told you, he's coming into your house. He's coming into your house. And he said, I want Christianity in your house. I want it in your marriage, too. Not just with your neighbors, not with the government, not with your bosses and the people you work for. Not only that, I want it right inside your house. And so he's going to get right down to business 
talk about being a Christian right inside your own house. Next week we'll go on. Thank you. Thank you.